0: Well, good morning and good evening to everybody who's watching and anything in between that. Uh, I'm Arthur Asadurian, and as you can see with me, we have Tyson James. Um, and we'll have Tyson introduce him uh, in a, himself in a, in a little bit and what he does and all the fun stuff uh, that he gets to interact with and in. I want to thank you guys for, for joining us, and I want to ask you to share this out. Even if you're watching the replay you can still share out videos. Um, that just helps uh, any YouTube video you're watching. Um, so it'll be really cool for you guys to share it out, get the word out there, because we are trying to grow as a YouTube channel, and we need all the help we can get, uh, because as many of you guys know, there's lots and lots and lots of content on YouTube. And so it really helps when you share it out, when you give it a thumbs up, When you comment, that also helps. Uh, Believe it or not, it helps. Uh, Interactions help because it shows that, excuse me, it helps uh, show that people are actually interacting with this video and are interested in the video and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So, all of this stuff works. Share that. I want to thank you guys. Um, Okay, so Tyson, uh, we're going to jump into it. We were actually just having a conversation about uh, languages, and Tyson speaks a number. And I, I speak, um, I speak two. Uh, so why don't we start there? Uh, how many languages do you speak? What are they? Why do you even speak them <laughs> is, a, is a question. Uh, and then we'll jump into our topic.
1: So I have to, I have to tell a language joke real quick. So I, I, uh, I took a Spanish class in high school and my teacher, she had a poster on her door and it said, uh, uh, what do you call someone who speaks three languages? trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? Probably American. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's, kind of true, it, it's
0: probably true, you know, <laughs> unless you count like southern dialects a language, which you probably could. Um, and, yeah. and, you know,
1: Um, I grew up in Arkansas, so that's like a whole different dialect right there. Yeah, well, I I speak
0: Texan, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, So it's crazy because here in Armenia, um, people are generally trilingual. Uh, They speak Armenian, which is obviously the native language and just everybody speaks it. Um, People speak Russian because that's an important language you need to know in this region, (laughs) Uh, and also Armenia actually, was dominated by, you know, the 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 uh, USSR for about 70 years. So the Russian was, uh, I think Russian was the legal language, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Like all the documentation, everything was in Russian, obviously for Moscow to be able to you know, connect with that. Um, and then now in the last maybe five to ten years, English has become a pretty dominant language here. Uh, there's a tech boom in Armenia. There's a lot of programmers coming uh, coming out of Armenia, and they're actually developing really cool stuff. For 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 those who want to invest in Armenia in the tech industry, uh, you can. By the way, I'm, seri- I'm serious. It's a good idea because you will get your money's worth. Um, You're gonna have
1: to give me some stock tips offline. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just, our, our, it's it's got pretty cool stuff coming out of it, uh, and you know, I I keep an out. It's like it, it's cool um so people tend to be trilingual and uh, it's just and and then like you meet someone who's like speaks French and speaks I don't know you know a bunch of other languages and you're like well where'd you come from you know six seven languages uh but so how did you so you okay what are those languages you speak
1: yeah so I uh I have an undergrad degree in Spanish so I actually took four years of Spanish in high school and have a college degree in Spanish and then um, worked in some industries after I got out of college that um, employed my Spanish. So I got pretty good at that. And then um, I entered the Air Force as a linguist. Hmm. And uh, I had to, and so I know Spanish and Arabic. And uh, I took uh, a few semesters of both Russian and Hebrew as well. So, Man. yeah. I so, really, I re- yeah, I just really enjoyed taking language courses. It was just something that I've always been fascinated by, and just uh, it's amazing that you know, it, even if you learn a little bit of another language, it just opens up a whole new world of communication with you know uh, many many people. So, yeah, yeah. really so, enjoy it
0: okay. for the Russian speakers. Uh, privet. Uh, privet, privet, privet. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, th- does philosophy count as a language? Because I think it should. <laughs> um,
1: I actually have a picture. You know, in conversations <laughs> with my wife, she she sometimes accuses me of speaking a totally different language. I, <laughs> amen. That's m- what my, my
0: wife has. Okay, you, you, you got ex- to explain that. So it, it's funny because <laughs> I have I have a picture at uh, from the Biola library or the book, you know, like when semester starts, they have, you know, section of it becomes a book sale section and stuff. So I was looking through some books and then, they had like a bunch of Plato's writings in the languages section. And I took a picture of it. <laughs> said, hey, that's, that's probably true. It, it is a foreign language. And, um, because, right? and, and we'll use probably some of these term, terms today. That's the reason why I say this, because I, I didn't have an undergrad degree in, in philosophy when I started my master's program at Talbot. And I remember sitting in class, Specifically, I remember sitting in an epistemology class and I was like, I know those words, but they're not being used the way I know them. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, certainty that's not the way I use certainty, right? <laughs> when yeah. I say I'm certain of something, it's just like, yeah, I'm sure of it, you know, and it's like they got to qualify it and explain it. So, I, I do think it should be probably qualified as a, as, as a language. Um so we'll just jump into it. Uh some of you guys are sitting there and saying, Well, Art, you just did a stream on Molinism, right, with Tim Stratton. Why are you doing another stream on Molinism? Um, I because I want it's 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 a complicated subject. Um and I wanted Tim and I spoke more about kind of Calvinism, Arminism, Molinism, how that interacts with that. Um and we'll kind of mention that, but I wanted to speak to Tyson specifically about probably the main doctrine that grounds Molinism in a certain way. Would that be fair to say, uh, Tyson? Um, mm. um, this this understanding of what's called middle knowledge. And so we're going to have Tyson explain to us what middle knowledge is. And then uh, we got a bunch of follow-up questions on that. And for those who are watching, feel free to write down, you know, put down some comments um, and questions if you have them because um, where wherever you may stand on the subject at least understand it right I know there was recently some controversy um, and I haven't seen this video so I can't comment on them very much uh, but uh, James White made a video and put it out there and I think some people were saying well it doesn't seem like you really understand Molinism uh, as you're criticizing it again I haven't seen the video so uh we'll we'll watch that when i have some time and then see <laughs> see whether that's true or not but um w- again but we're gonna deal with calvinism uh and and see whether it's even necessary to criticize uh th- at least this aspect of Molinism. so give us a breakdown of what Molinism is tyson
1: yeah sorry so, what middle uh, knowledge is not Molinism. what middle
0: yeah. knowledge is i shouldn't correct myself what what is middle knowledge
1: Yeah. So um, to begin with, you know, that that's a big question. So I kind of try to break it down um, in three different ways. So the first way that I break it down is um, I say that middle knowledge is an answer to a question. And that question is, how can it be true that God is sovereign over all things and that creatures can be free? and therefore morally responsible. So it's it's an answer to that question. And uh, so to understand Molina, or middle knowledge, it's helpful to give a little background on how it arose. And I tried to watch that recent video uh, you did with Dr. Tim Stratton <laughs> to make sure that we're not uh, rehashing a lot of uh, uh, already done information. Yeah. So um, the, I didn't hear you guys kind of cover some of the biblical... Um, foundation for, you know, how that concept arose. So I'm going to cover that just a little bit real quick. Um, First of all, the Bible affirms both uh, God's divine sovereignty, his sovereignty over all things, and also creaturely freedom and moral responsibility. So uh, passages that deal with God's sovereignty are things like uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, so that says, uh, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, right? That that expresses God's knowledge of what's going on and his uh, nothing happening outside of his will. And then uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So those are all very strong verses talking about divine sovereignty. So uh, God is Lord over all. And then uh, the second point there was creaturely freedom and moral responsibility. And so... Um, some of the verses that deal with those concepts are verses like Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Uh, says, uh, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So there you have the freedom to resist sin and choose the good. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 19 is where Moses puts the choice before Israel to either follow God and enter the promised land or walk away from God and lose possession of the land, right? That's a choice that they have to make between two options. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 to 32, it says, uh, "'Cast away from you all transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel?' For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So there, uh, the option is presented to Israel to either um, turn away from their sin and follow God, or reject Him and go towards death. Okay. And then I would add um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, this is very strong uh, in favor of human freedom. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Hmm. So here uh, Paul is writing uh, to Christians, and he's saying that Christians, you have an option. When you are presented with temptation, you can either give into it, or resist it, and you have that genuine option. Uh, it's not that you're forced to do either one. And so, given this biblical data, uh, when the Protestant Reformation came around, there was a Jesuit, Catholic Jesuit um, counter-reformer named Luis de Molina in the 16th century, and he saw that there were people on kind of both sides of the Reformation who were um, sort of deviating from the biblical passages on these on, on this, these concepts and he was like no we need to uphold both sides of this both divine sovereignty and human responsibility and freedom and so that's what caused him to think about this deeply and come up with the concept of middle knowledge because he thought that middle knowledge was the concept that was the key to preserving all of that biblical data and so that's the first way I would answer that question.
0: Okay. Um, what, what's the second way that you would answer this question? The,
1: the second way I would answer it is that uh, middle knowledge is a concept that, uh, that affirms, um, well, I would say that Molinism especially is a concept that affirms two things. And one of them is middle knowledge and the other one is libertarian freedom. And so um, these are both important to, I think, what's going to happen later on in the discussion. So um, first of all, uh, middle knowledge. uh, You guys discussed a lot about what middle knowledge is, so I'm going to try and break it down as quickly and at at its most basic core as I can. Um, So philosophers and theologians describe what is included in God's knowledge as three different uh, moments or three different types of knowledge that all fall fall under God's omniscience. And so um, that is what could happen, which is God's natural knowledge. What will happen as a result of God's deciding to create a particular world, that's God's free knowledge. And then in between those, there's this sort of hypothetical knowledge, which is middle knowledge. And that is before God decided to create a particular world, He knew uh, what free creatures he could create and what they would freely do in any particular situation. And so that, that would is what middle knowledge is. Yeah. And so with that information, with that knowledge of what free creatures would do in any situation, uh, he can ensure that his plan will come to fruition because he incorporates that information into his planning of history. Okay. Uh,
0: so I, I yeah. guess that would naturally lead us to to my second question, uh, was it, which is yeah. how does middle knowledge work with God's decision making? Um, is it the only yeah. way he makes decisions? Like is, um, can he not make decisions otherwise? Right? Like, uh, without using it, like, it, he just has to use it? Um, how does it yeah, work? So
1: that that's, completely, it's completely up to him whether or not he wants to incorporate his middle knowledge into his planning of history. Right? Um, because he only really needs to employ middle knowledge if he's going to create creatures that have uh, indeterministic behavior or free behavior. And that, that includes not, on, not only um, free, free uh, humans, but also free angels, and even possibly indeterministic um, um, subatomic particles, like you know, that you'll find in quantum mechanics where there's quantum indeterminacy. Hmm. Um, There are certain interpretations of quantum mechanics that are deterministic, but some that are indeterministic. So the indeterministic ones, um, if they're truly sort of, you know, um, not determined by prior circumstances, their behavior, then God would need middle knowledge to be certain about what that behavior would be at the quantum level. So those are just some instances of where if God is going to create those entities— then he would need middle knowledge to be able to plan for um, their behavior in his um, exhaustive planning of history. Okay,
0: so some people might say, <clears throat> I was having a friend. I was having a conversation. With, sorry, uh, can you hear me now?
1: No, I can't hear you now.
0: Hmm. That's funny. Let's see. You sure? <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so we're having some issues here. So you still can't hear me. Sorry, can't hear you. you can't hear me. Wow. Let's see. Okay. Because audio's coming through for me. Okay, so the YouTube audience can hear me. Uh okay. <laughs>
1: Maybe we'll just have to do the whole rest of the the video by chat.
0: (laughs) Okay, let me see. I might have to, let's see, call you back. Let's do this. Let me turn off Skype. He can't hear me now. So we're going to turn Skype off. Yeah, I know the YouTube audience can hear. And, And YouTube audience, you guys can hear him as well, right? Like you guys heard everything he was saying. Okay. No. Okay, you can hear me now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was weird, because the YouTube audience was able to hear you and everything you said, and they were able to hear me. So that's good. We didn't lose too uh, too much content. Oh, but, but they didn't they hear you either. They were. He- they no. They heard me well. Uh, There's no issues. Huh?
1: So it's just on my end. Yeah.
0: Skype glitch or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Get get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, so I was having a conversation. This is what I was saying. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. And we were speaking about this. And then he said, what's the point of that? It's just like, why are you going through all this stuff? It's, this is just stuff God knows. Like, for him, it was... This is just part of a God's knowledge and I don't need to define it as middle knowledge or something like that. Right. Like this. Um, sure. And, and so what would be a response to someone like that? Now I must say my buddy, uh, is a Calvinist who said this to me. And he was just like, "Yeah, why, why are you doing these backflips to explain all this stuff? What's going on? Um, I mean the conversation led us to, um, speak about whether he actually believes in human freedom um, the way I believe in it. And um, and what does that look like within this Calvinistic framework and moral responsibility and all that stuff. So um, as far as I remember, I remember joining a panel discussion a number of years ago at the Evangelical Theological Society conference where there was a guy who was a Calvinist who also was a Molinist. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember this <laughs> correctly. So that would be my question, because there's a lot of the a lot of the responses we get um, uh, in, in this dialogue is from individuals who, who are Calvinists saying this is useless, or, um, you know, you guys on the other side, believe this or something like that. Can one be yeah. a Calvinist? And believe in middle knowledge. And if they can, what do they need to change, like theologically, right?
1: Yeah, so um, Dr. Kirk McGregor actually wrote an article for uh, Stratton's uh, website, freethinkingministries.com. Um, the, I think the title is, Can You Be a Calvinist and a Molinist? And uh, Dr. McGregor's answer was, yes, in fact, you can. Uh, because his wife is one, actually. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He's like, I, with one. I, with He's one. Like, I know so, at least one. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think the important thing, first of all, to note is that Molinism is not a soteriology, right? A soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. And uh, Molinism is not a soteriology. Um, the concepts that fall under Molinism, at least contemporary Molinism as as I've defined it today, uh, can be applied to salvation, uh, but it does, it's not necessary to do so. It has many applications outside of the the discussion on salvation. Hmm. So um, whether or not one can be a Calvinist um, and a Molinist depends heavily on what one means by Calvinist, right? Um, can one be a Molinist and still affirm everything that Calvin believed? Um, it, that that's iffy, because if um, if something Calvin said suggested that God does not have middle knowledge, then I don't see how one could be a Molinist and a Calvinist. Mm. But I don't think that Calvin actually said anything that would preclude God's having middle knowledge. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a Calvin scholar, so I wouldn't be able to, to say authoritatively, um, state anything authoritatively on that. So, uh, again, that would largely depend on what one means by Calvinist. Now, if one just means by Calvinist the soteriological points, the, the TULIP um, acronym, yeah. um, then yes, one could still be a Molinist affirming middle knowledge, affirming libertarian free will outside of uh, salvation, and you could perfectly um, affirm middle knowledge for sure so for, and of course it fits very snugly with arminianism so, yeah yeah that's, that's so for some people who might be
0: confused there are individuals there are christians who believe in determinism basically when it comes to salvation um yeah you know so uh, salvation is determined right like god's election is just determined and then libertarian free will on everything
1: else uh right
0: <laughs> there, there are individuals of this sort
1: <laughs> and I noticed that most determinists even will want to affirm at least libertarian freedom in, in one or two circumstances. Number one, Satan. Um, the choice of Satan seems to be, you know, if you're going to say that Satan fell, um, you have to say either that Satan freely chose or that God caused him to fall. Yeah. Right, um, that's problematic if you say that God caused Satan to choose evil. Right, that that does seem problematic. And then also determinists usually want to say that Adam was one of you know had at least um, a free choice and that he misused his free choice and then free will vanished. Or after that. sin
0: impacted or, in such a way where um, you know the the impact of sin. Uh, or the fall has changed this whole understanding of free will because of our nature, uh, that we you know Romans right. three right uh, 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 that we don't pursue after God like our, our free will is kind of you know destroyed in in that in regards to that um, was Molina um, and I, this is kind of leading but I, I I heard that he Molina was accused of being a Calvinist, um, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah,
1: so he got he got he got a lot of. Flack from both sides, really. Um, you know, a, a little, you know, and Molinists today catch that all the time. Dr. Craig himself, um, who, you know, uh, he'll say that Molinists tend to, you know, get uh, accused of being Calvinists from Arminians and get accused of being Arminians from Calvinists because of the very robust doctrine of divine sovereignty that. Molinists tend to affirm, and also the robust doctrine of human freedom, right? And so we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have the best of both worlds, right. and we believe that middle knowledge is the key to being able to have both. And so it does, I, and I get this all the time that um, Molinism, people will say that Molinism seems deterministic because God knows everything in advance, and nothing will occur that uh, happens outside of what he knows will occur. So the, the question naturally arises. It's like, how can we truly be free if God truly knows for certain what will happen? Yeah. And of course, we, we always, Molinists, have to point out that just because God knows w- for certain what will happen, that doesn't mean that he is deterministically causing that yeah. to happen.
0: Now, I'm going to throw a question at you. Um, And I don't know how much you've you've thought about this, but I I enjoy this subject a great deal. And I would like to have Dr. Craig on (laughs) and and, uh, ask him about this. Um, I don't know what your view of time is, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think when we include a certain kind of view of time in regards to how God knows the future, right? And, and for those who, who've who never thought about this and would like to, Greg Ganzel has a book called God and Time, Four Views. That's a great introductory book uh, because you will get four different views of God and time, God's relationship with time. Um, Dr. Craig is one of the authors there. Paul Helm represents the kind of Augustinian view of time. Um, Alan Paget, I think, is is the other. And then Nick Walterstorf, if I'm not mistaken. Is, is the mm-hmm. fourth year. I think I got all the names in that book <laughs> correct. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, Gary DeWeese has written, uh, man, it's a heavy book. I mean, he's, he's got a book on God and Time. I took God and Time. I took God and <laughs> Time with <laughs> Gary DeWeese. And we had to read through that. And I struggled because there's like the physics and all that stuff. I was, this is way beyond me, right? But I really enjoyed the subject. I've written on it. And then, but it works together. This whole understanding of God's foreknowledge. How does God know the future? Does the future already exist? And then God kind of looks to the future. And then he's like, oh, you know, I see Arthur there, which is typically the view Arminianism has been portrayed. Whether that is the case or that is not, some scholars can debate on that. But what God looks into the future, knows you're going to, you know, elect him, and therefore he elects you. This kind of understanding. Uh, But a certain kind of view of time um, is going to help you figure out how God knows the
1: future. Do you want to comment on that? Um, Yeah, I I would say that um, uh, many um, theologians through the centuries uh, believed that God is uh, timeless, that he remains outside of time, mm -hmm. and um, that the rest of creation exists in time, and that God sort of has this um, transcendent vision of all things in a timeless state, and um, therefore can see the beginning from the end. And that, that terminology, that language of seeing, um, is very perceptual. You'll see that throughout history mm-hmm. in theological writings, is that God sees the, the future. And it sort of suggests, like, you know, like we use the, the normal term seeing as looking out uh, a window or a door and, you know, mm-hmm. seeing a tree across the way. And God sees the things in the future much like that. He just perceives it. And I think um, we want to, if we're affirming a particular view of time where the future does not yet exist, um, like Dr. Craig's A theory of time, uh, he prefers the A theory of time, then the future doesn't yet exist. There's nothing to see. Right. Um, The future doesn't yet exist. And so you'll need a different model than that perceptualist language of seeing the future. And so he makes a distinction between perceptualist uh, under a con, a, a concept of foreknowledge and a conceptualist hmm. uh, concept of foreknowledge, where on the conceptualist model, uh, God simply thinks. He, he just, um, in his mind, conceives of the future, much like we would conceive of a hypothetical situation. Like, um, I can think about what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um You know, what I'm going to do tomorrow doesn't yet exist. Those scenarios haven't happened. Um, They're not there yet, but I can conceive it in my mind and imagine how it goes. And God can do the same thing with the future, uh, only much better than we can. Right? He's God, so he's uh, omniscient and knows for certain what will happen in the future. So um, there's really no need for that perceptualist model since God in his mind can perfectly conceive of the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's. Uh, listen, I, I I say this because uh, with most theological things, right, they're not just kind of separated from one another. They actually work with one another. Now, um, I posted something on Facebook uh, recently that that some some of my friends commented on. It, it was from the Big Bang Theory, and they because there's time like they, these time travel movies. Uh, our, our regular kind of uh, conversation. They're talking about. Yeah, new
1: Bill and Ted uh, movie coming out. Soon. That's right.
0: Yeah, I love time travel <laughs> movies. By the way, I love any movie that deals with time. Uh, I enjoy them, but and then they bug me because they all run into the same problem, right?
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> I haven't seen that new movie yet. To uh, Christopher Nolan movie Tenet. Have you heard of no. it? No oh yeah oh yeah I, uh, the trailers for that look amazing too but so, anyway sorry Got no that. no it's,
0: it's because uh, like i remember um i remember going to the movies uh to watch interstellar yeah. and the guy sitting next to me was one of the guys from our youth group kind of movie junkie really enjoys stuff like that and he'd already seen it and the movie starts and like five ten minutes into it i just lean over and i say i know what's gonna happen <laughs> He's like, what? And then I just tell him the ending. <laughs> He's like, bro, you just ruined the movie, right? Like, and I said, so I've thought about this, and then I've read about it, and typically, this is the way this kind of sort of stuff works out. Um, and uh, you know, and so it's important for people. Uh, I mean, watch that stuff, think through it, because um, my view, for example, really helps with prayer um uh it, it really like uh, genuine conversations with god my view internet router oh there we're back okay um uh, <laughs> sorry about that guys this is strange because i'm i have my ipad in front of me and i'm connected to the same exact router as my laptop and then my laptop dropped <laughs> the connection like it just wasn't connecting and but my my ipad was completely fine I was i was chatting with the folks so <laughs> hey man weird stuff i don't know um Technology is weird. Uh, okay, we're so. gonna do
1: an exorcism from your laptop.
0: <laughs> I don't, uh, get away. Um, okay, so I was commenting <laughs> on prayer. <laughs> I said my view of my view of God's relationship <laughs> with time helps me with with prayer, and prayer being a genuine interaction with God. Okay, like yeah. I pray and He answers, not He. You know, he made that decision and answered it in eternity past, and then just like it, it, it happens now. Even though I think God knew it in the past, but I think He actually makes the decisions as as I'm speaking about uh, to Him. The other way, the other thing it helps me in my view of time um, is a moral responsibility. Right? I don't want to go into that, but um, it <laughs> it it does, it, meaning that I am guilty like you know uh, and people are guilty when they commit crimes and stuff like that um, and you can hold right. them responsible and and then also uh, when it comes to salvation this is probably the biggest theological thing that it helps me with is that because if I always see a problem, like if, if, say, you know, you're like a time worm, kind of this understanding of that Einstein has. And I think theologically, it becomes an issue of when God looks at you at one, which slice of time is he looking at you? Right. Are you his enemy or are you his son? Like, w- what's the reality? And I think that's an issue. That right. That's also why I believe in the A theory of time rather than a the B theory of time. Um, and so, Okay. With that said, because it does have to interact. Your view of time has to interact with also this middle knowledge. Like, I, I, I kind of don't see it in a way where it doesn't have to. You at least have to have some kind of an opinion on this. Um, mm. So, yeah. Um, okay. What possible theological issues? Now, we just mentioned prayer and stuff. What other theological issues does
1: middle knowledge help with? Oh man, so many. So, um, yeah, like Dr. Craig said, um, middle knowledge is one of the most fruitful theological concepts out there, um, because it has so many applications to so many different areas in theology. Um, one familiar example, um, would be the problem of evil, right? Hmm. Um, you know, one of the problems is, uh, when uh, we think about God and what he's able to do, you know, the the traditional problem is if if God uh, is omnipotent, he should be able to get rid of all evil. And if he is omnibenevolent, he's all good, hmm. then uh, he should want to get rid of evil. So why is there evil? Um, middle knowledge comes in to explain that, because if God can create free creatures, then in order to create a world with as much good as there currently is, he may have to allow a certain amount of evil as well, um, given his decision to create free creatures. So with middle knowledge, God could know that a much greater good could come from allowing a creature to freely choose evil. Hmm. And that's exactly what Alvin Planninga described in his uh, Free Will Defense. And it's really interesting um, that, you know, uh Luis de Molina came up with the concept of middle knowledge in the 16th century, and it kind of died off because the Catholic Church leaned more towards the view of Thomas Aquinas, which was another, you know, um, just uh, he's the doctor of the Catholic Church, right? He's the guy that Catholics look up to as the, the philosopher. And so Molina's view kind of died out. But then just this last century, Alvin Plantinga, just doing philosophical work on, you know, God, um, completely ignorant of middle knowledge. Uh, He came up with the same concept and used middle knowledge to, you know, to um, support his free will defense. And he didn't have any idea what it is. Somebody had to come up to him and said, hey, you're using (laughs) middle knowledge. And he was like, what is that? You know? So it's amazing how strong the concept is and how intuitive it is to people who think very deeply about this subject, that it would come back alive after so many centuries yeah. of being kind of looked over.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Two brilliant individuals. No, two brilliant individuals. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and um, if uh, just for your uh, viewers, uh, if they haven't picked up a copy of um uh, Alfred Ferdoso's translation of uh, Molina's Concordia Part Four. It's called On Divine Foreknowledge. I highly recommend it uh, because it's basically reading Molina in his own words, right, the, uh, in an English translation. And um, when you read him in his own words, you just realize how brilliant of a philosopher he really was, a philosopher and theologian he was, and how committed to Christ he truly was. Mm. Um, and committed to the authority of scripture and really, um, doing scripture service, um, and bringing in and incorporating deep philosophical, um, commitment, uh, to coherence and truth to the biblical text. So, so really good resource for years.
0: There you guys go. Uh, that's, you, you guys can good look into that. Um, some reading, <laughs> um, so the, the problem of evil is, is one of them, right? And uh, yeah. by the way, the problem of evil is probably the, I don't, probably I, in my experience is the number one question people ask. E- even people who aren't really into, you know, thinking about this, it's just, it's a natural thing that arises. It's like, well, you're talking about God's sure. goodness and his love and stuff like that. And people go, well, yeah, but like, I know a guy that his kids died, right? um and and how, and he's a christian and if god loves him then you know but so it just naturally arises i've actually had to help people like okay here's the here like some atheist guy or something like that someone doesn't know they've just said it and i say okay here's the way people formulate that and then let, let's talk about it uh because it, it is we can't
1: just ignore it right it, it is a major issue Yeah, on that point. um, So I'm the global chapters director for Reasonable Faith. I supervise all of our chapters around the world. Uh, We have about 180 of them right now. Um, But before I was the global chapters director, I was also a local chapter director uh, out in Monterey, California. And at one of our meetings, um, there was an atheist who started attending and we were meeting in a church and I had advertised the uh, chapter and he just started coming because he enjoyed talking about religious things and um, also just being part of a community. And so he started coming to these, these meetings and I, I asked him, I was like, you know, uh, what's what's your story? And part of his story was that the reason he, he needed community was because his wife had recently died mm. uh, from cancer. And so what was really interesting is that during the class, he only attended a few times, but during the few times that he attended, um, one of our regular attendees had a father who also passed away. And so there it was. We, uh, I, I was beginning to teach a class on the fine-tuning argument, and my computer shut down, so I couldn't teach that day. And so we had these two people, an atheist who was dealing with the death of his wife and a, a lady who was dealing with the death of her father. And so I said, okay, God, you set this up. (laughs) So we circled the chairs and just, you know, sat down and said, okay, you guys are coming at pain and suffering and evil in the world from two very different perspectives. You know, how is it that you're dealing with this from your individual perspectives? And uh, I've got to tell you, you know, in our class, we were talking about middle knowledge and, you know, um, the problem of evil and how. You know, the, the free decisions we make affect the world, and God can use that for a greater good. And it was amazing to see the the regular attender, the lady, how confident she was in the fact that even though she was sad that her father was dead, that God was bringing about a greater good out of that suffering, out of that tragedy, that she had a confidence to— in salvation in jesus christ because we were also talking about the evidence for the resurrection mm. and how there's historical evidence for that and how she was very confident that he was saved in christ and that she would one day be rejoined with him
0: yeah so so again because right we're not machines <laughs> some of us like to be uh thought of that way we're, we're actually not these uh... I, I lost your audio oh, again, man. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, this is insane. I've had more issues today than at any other day, any other stream. So it seems like the internet, which is weird, because it seems like the the YouTube audience can hear us just well. Okay, I'm hoping this is back. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. This so weirdest day. Um, it's really
1: strange it's it's early in the day man you got to get it out of the way early. yeah
0: i know i hope so right like i hope so. the, the, the you know i on tuesday nights i do armenia time i i do streams and i answer live questions with uh with our our classes and so hopefully you know we won't have any issues tonight <laughs> so i use the same software so but it doesn't seem like it's it's an it's, it's, it's strange um, um i was saying that we we're not robots some people like to think we are and stuff like that but um, the, the older get, I'm getting as, as an individual and as a Christian, uh, the, the more like I realize, hey, just dealing with issues, tough issues, um, and the kind of confidence I get, like emotional confidence, you know, psychological confidence and stuff like that, it, it's really important. And having a good grounding of that theologically uh-huh. is even better uh, because I've seen a lot of people either get very cold in their christianity not that they've left the faith or something like that whether you believe that can actually happen or not is a secondary question to me um but either get really cold we're just like uh um not you know um i don't care about christianity or people actually who just said um I'm, I'm not very confident about this i don't think it's true it's not for me or something like that right but having those answers, the logic, just gives you a solid foundation because um, it impacts you. Um, let's talk about this and then we'll, we'll come to an end. I, I'm, yeah, people are like, I hope the stream stays. I hope so too, but we've had <laughs> crazy issues today. What are some counter arguments to middle knowledge? Uh, what, yeah. are, what, what do some people say uh, against middle knowledge or argue against it?
1: So we over, we already covered um, one area that I think touches on one objection. So um, one, one of the things I hear is that on Molinism, God's decisions are based on creatures, hmm. which means he's not sovereign, right? If he has to learn something from his creatures, then how can he be sovereign over everything, right? He's supposed to be omniscient. He doesn't need creatures to know anything. And so that's, again, that uh, perceptualist understanding of God's omniscience where he looks Mm. at creatures in the future or something, potential creatures, and then learns something from that. Uh, But again, if God is essentially omniscient, he can just imagine in his mind all of the free creatures he could create and then know via his middle knowledge what they would freely do in any situation and then incorporate that information into his planning of history. So he doesn't learn anything from creatures because creatures don't exist yet prior to creation. There are no creatures, right? So there's no way that he could learn from the creatures what they would freely do. Yeah. Um, So that's just a misunderstanding of the model. Uh, Another objection would... uh, This is kind of a, a more vague sort of gesture question or objection, but some people say that Molinism puts... Man's freedom on a pedestal, and it it elevates man's freedom too high, right? It says that um, man can make decisions that God doesn't directly cause, and therefore man is too free. Hmm. Um, But I think the opposite is true, or not the opposite, but um, that that is not true in an appropriate way. That freedom is a necessary condition for moral responsibility and i think we all kind of intuitively know that like if we're you know if if there's somebody in front of us and somebody pushes us from behind and we run into the person in front of us we all intuitively know that we were not to blame for pushing the person in front of us it was the person behind us but on a cosmic level determinism seems very much like that that god is pushing the dominoes so to speak and those dominoes fall on us, right, and we fall into each other, and there's no recourse there, there's no freedom in that. And so um, it, it seems like, you know, if we're going to have genuine moral responsibility, there needs to be genuine freedom as well. And what that does is it puts your sin into perspective, I think. And you were talking about that a little bit earlier, is, um, our, our responsibility. Uh, under uh, a libertarian that, uh, freedom actually abases us as sinners. It brings us lower because we realize that our sins and all of the consequences of sin, that ripple effect all across history, all across geography, that is our fault. That's not God's fault because he didn't cause us, Mm -hmm. uh, to do those things. So really instead of elevating man, uh, Affirming a robust view of human freedom actually brings us down to where we should be, uh, which is responsible for our sin. And then I also think that um, instead of elevating man's freedom and putting it on a pedestal, it actually elevates the love of God, uh, because freedom is necessary for um, loving relationships. Hmm. And so if God doesn't create us to be free, then how can it be said that he enters into a loving relationship with us? There's no reciprocation. He's just loving a, a non-free object like you would love a favorite rock or something. And that doesn't seem like a, a, a relationship that's capable of reciprocation and love, that at, the type of love that is described in the Bible that we should have for God. So I think rather than putting a man's freedom on a pedestal, middle knowledge and Molinism actually um, enables us to affirm robust human responsibility as well as our loving relationships with God.
0: Okay. Let me ask you a final question and then we'll we'll be done. Yeah. Um, you know, there there's these counterfactual statements we see in the Bible, right? Um, yeah. Right. If, if, this were done, you know, Jesus statement. if this were done in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, right, if these miracles were done, then they would have, right? Uh, that's that's kind of a proof yeah. text that uh, Molnus used for this middle knowledge yeah. and stuff. Um, what would be a response to individuals? Because, you know, I've had conversations with my friends and they say, well, Art, you know, you're making too much of that statement. It's, 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 it's a hypothetical, uh, yeah. right? It's, it's like you're, you're making way too much uh, of it. Uh, trying to say this is an actual kind of counterfactual and stuff. So, um, what, what would be a response in a situation like that with even the Bible passages that you quoted earlier and stuff like that? Well, they, not, it wasn't necessarily these counterfactuals, but we see when you start seeing the counterfactuals in the Bible, you can't unsee them. It's like one of those right. things where you're just like, oh, there it is again, there it is again, right? Um, so let's let's end with uh,
1: with maybe a response to that. So, I would almost agree with them that there are certain people who do make too much of them in that they will say that the biblical uh, verses with counterfactuals um, are explicit endorsements or explicit teachings of middle knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's an incorrect view, because um, Molinists and non-Molinists alike, uh, around the time of the Reformation, when Molina was um, introducing this doctrine, they all affirmed counterfactuals. What they differed on was when, in God's knowledge, he knew them, right? Did he know them logically prior to his decision to create, or logically posterior Mm. to that decision to create? And that was the main dividing line um, between the Molinists and the non-Molinists. Molina and his compatriots uh, would say that if God knew counterfactuals only after his divine decree, his creative decree, then that would destroy freedom, right? Because God didn't know ahead of time. He couldn't anticipate how we would freely choose. And so, therefore, he couldn't plan history. Um, And then, but if he did have it beforehand, Molina would say, then he could plan for those free choices. So I would say that we don't want to press the scriptural data too far. We want to allow it to be what it is without trying to press it into the service of our view. Um, But I would say that it is consistent with Molinism, and anybody who says that Molinism is unbiblical has a very long way to go to show that there are any passages in Scripture which preclude the concept of middle knowledge, yeah. um, because I've asked for such verses, and I've just not found any that are very convincing. So uh, we, we don't, you know, we, we don't want to say that um, those verses on counterfactuals prove middle knowledge in the sense of a mathematical, like it explicitly teaches. Um, it might support middle knowledge, but there, we also want to say that they're doesn't seem to be any biblical data that would preclude or prevent us from affirming middle knowledge.
0: Hmm. Okay. Excellent. And I had a question. Just, all right. Okay. I, I comment, not a question. Uh, let me just say this guys. Um, yeah. It's important, right? Like uh, that when we think about theology, when we think about this stuff to, to actually look at the Bible as the authority on it and then get our, Teachings from it, and if we're gonna if we're gonna believe something, it shouldn't be even right. Like all my Calvinist friends, I have extremely dear friends who are Calvinists who disagree with me on this stuff. Um, uh, it's it's they're fun conversations, right, over lunch and coffee and all that stuff, in house conversations. Um, but all of us uh, really aim at elevating Scripture above all things, and then saying. We're getting this stuff. We actually believe the Bible teaches this stuff. Not like, oh, you know, Calvinism makes me uncomfortable and therefore I don't want to accept it. Like, that's not my view. I, I, I don't think that should be our view. It sh- just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean you reject it because you don't like it. Like Because then if, if it's like that, you're not going to like many things <laughs> about God and about, you know, Scripture and all that stuff. The, the reality is that we need to really ground this stuff biblically. And say, I, I think this is actually what the Bible teaches, not the other way around, not to come up with your theories and then say, you know, um, here it is. And, and all of these guys, whether it was Calvin, whether it was Molina, whether, whomever it was, I hope um, uh, that the desire and the aim is to actually say this is the actual teaching of the Bible or this is a teaching of the Bible. I, I can see why these other things are and, you know, that you struggle within uh, within these things um never making these things uh, i just never making these things a point of contention to to where you're like telling people they're not christians uh, if they don't believe it or something like that and then now you're changing what the gospel actually teaches and how salvation is and what makes someone a christian all that stuff uh so i mean think through them think about them like i said there's extremely practical ways that some of these doctrines um Could be used in giving you the confidence and in uh, you know improving your interaction and your relationship with god um if if that is something that you you might struggle with and i know individuals pastorally i've dealt with individuals they're like why pray because if if god made this decision in eternity past like why why even talk to him someone made a comment in the comment section where they said um they have been told that prayer doesn't do anything and this was i mean this comment was made by a christian whether it was made in ignorance or they actually believe this stuff, like, uh, you know, it could be the case where you say, hey, brother, maybe your theology is incorrect or the outworking of your theology, you're not seeing it correctly. But here's an alternate view where it it, it might possibly change, you know, your entire prayer life uh, and your interaction with God. Um, theology matters. Thinking about this stuff matters. Um uh, and we're not trying to overly complicate things that don't need to be complicated. It's just when you think about God, it is God is God is complicated because he's God. And that's just the reality of it. And and we do need to be a bit humble um, within the process of that, because um, we are thinking about uh, the, the originator of all things, the one that has, who sustains the universe in existence. And so there needs to be a bit of humility to say, I could be wrong and I'm willing to change my view on this. So, um, as Antonik said, God has already determined things. That's why they think, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's most likely why they would have made that statement, uh, by the way. Um, if you guys have any questions, post it here. We'll give like a couple of minutes to this for Tyson. If you guys have any questions for Tyson, you want, to, you want him to, to comment on it. If not, we'll, we'll end it. So I'm out of my question, so.
1: Oh, well, let me just uh, mention one of the other objections I was going to raise, because you Mm -hmm. kind of mentioned it just now. Um, You were talking about, you know, how complex these types of uh, concepts can be. Mm. And that's actually one of the objections um, that I think people raise is that Molinism is so complex. You know, the Bible, uh, you know, it doesn't need to be that complex, right? Uh, We just need the simple gospel, and that's all we need. Um, First of all, the Bible is not simple, right? Um, (laughs) uh, You can read it simplistically, but uh, if you're going to understand it and the depths of it, you're going to have to do a lifetime's worth of work. And even in a lifetime, you cannot get to the bottom of it. Uh, That's why, you know, for... Oh, thousands of years we've been studying the Bible and still are finding new insights and new, um, things to talk about, about it. So, um, that's not the issue, but also, um, it's, it's funny to note that really everything is complex to everyone at some point, That's right? right? When you're a baby using a spoon is really complex. You have to grow up at some point, right? So uh, it's kind of like that with theology, too. There are things that seem really complex at first, and if you just dig down deep enough, it become, becomes simpler, right? Um, quantum physics seems really complex to everyone at, in the beginning, and people who study quantum physics for a long time, they have a better grasp. Right. It becomes easier for them because they're dealing with the issue more often. So anybody who thinks it's too complex right now, it just... Uh, urge you to continue plugging away at it little by little keep digging in keep watching these videos uh, keep um, reading the literature out there uh, until you finally get a grasp on the concepts because it does get easier
0: Hmm. yeah Um, (laughs) I'll share a little story Um, I I didn't witness this my wife told me about my children Uh, I'll just this whole complexity about kids and how they view things but uh, my six-year-old and my four-year-old were having a conversation about Jesus and they were praying um, bec- we are gonna be going back to the United States on on the plan is September 6th uh yeah so we're, <laughs> we're coming back uh, and um, and and then we'll do some traveling there and all that stuff so you know there was issues about like the flights getting cancelled and all that stuff and uh, my kids were praying about it and and somehow that evolved into a conversation about Jesus death for us, and my six-year-old tells my four-year-old, you know, Jesus died for our sins and all this stuff, um, and and then then they spoke about when it happened, and my four-year-old said, I think it was it was like a month ago, <laughs> and then my six-year-old said, No, 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 it wasn't a month ago. I think it was like a year ago. right So <laughs> now I say this because. Listen for a four-year-old and a six-year-old. A month ago and a year ago is a very long time ago, right? Yeah. For them, it's like, oh man, a year ago. That's right. And it's comp. It's complicated for them. And my son, my six-year-old, loves math. Like the, the he's always like adding stuff and what is this and you know, and um, so he he enjoys those kinds of conversations. Uh, and again, when you say 2,000 years ago, like how does he conceptualize? It's complicated, right? But it gets less complicated as, as you think about it. It's, so, it's just that's the reality of it. Uh, now, again, that doesn't mean we're going to understand everything perfectly and all that stuff. But I highly recommend, guys, uh, you don't have to agree with any of this stuff, right? Um, like it's, it's not like you lose your salvation if you don't believe in middle knowledge or something. But the reality is where, where, wherever you may stand in your theology, at least do your due diligence, due diligence in understanding the opposing views, and represent them well when you pose, oppose them. Right? Don't like caricature. Caric, uh, uh, don't make a caricature, caricature out of them, and um, and yeah. just like argue something down that nobody really believes. Uh, yeah. Right. So it's it's extremely important that we do that. Um, okay. With that said, Tyson, thanks a lot, man. Uh, thank you for, for joining us and agreeing to do this. Appreciate it. Uh, I don't think we mentioned your job. Do you want to mention? And then uh, for those who don't know, could could potentially go and and benefit from from the work that you do. Why don't you Why don't you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mentioned it just a little bit yeah. a while ago, but I can uh, elaborate a little bit. So I work for uh, Dr. William Lane Craig's ministry, Reasonable Faith, as an apologetics ministry. Um, and uh, my role, I have two roles. My my first role is as Global Chapters Director. So we have local chapters all over the world, six continents, almost 180 active chapters right now. And um, what they do is they basically carry out the mission of reasonable faith on a local level. They meet regularly. Obviously, uh, with COVID, they haven't been meeting in person, but they've been meeting online and um, sharing uh, apologetics material and presenting arguments and evidence for the existence of God and dealing with objections to the Christian faith. And so um, I supervise those and help open new ones all over the world. Um, Just an amazing privilege that I have to be involved in that. And then my second role is as the director of translations. So uh, we try to get Dr. Craig's material translated into as many um, different languages all over the world uh, as we can, including Armenian. So, uh, um, yeah, I coordinate with um, many, many teams all over the world to get those um, articles, videos, um, podcasts, all of them translated into other languages.
0: Okay, so, uh, so someone said, how does one become a reasonable faith director?
1: <laughs> oh, great question. So the first step is to go onto the website, reasonablefaith.org and look up the uh, chapters link there. And there's an online application And what that does, that'll send me the uh, personal information needed to uh, be considered to open a chapter, and then I'll send you an email with additional information on the steps, which is basically reading the Reasonable Faith book and completing the study guide, and then providing uh, two contact information for two references, and then um, a one-to-two-page testimony of how you came to Christ and what your personal walk with Him looks like today. And that's basically it. Um, Yeah. And after that, you're uh, certified as a chapter director to um, basically run a chapter the way you see fit. Our chapters run semi-autonomously. We don't have a set curriculum that you have to follow. So uh, we do that intentionally because the the people in front of you, you know them better than we do. And so we want our chapter directors to really take the reins and um, present the material that their people need.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: And um, uh, reasonablefaith.org is an
0: excellent, excellent uh, resource, guys. Um, there's, You can just go on there and just type a question you have. Most likely someone's asked it, and Dr. Craig has written an article on it. It's, it's not that he just writes these paragraphs. He writes articles with references. <laughs> you can actually use some of these articles as a starting point in your research. Just go read the article and then go to his references and start hopping around. You can write a nice research paper where that's your starting point. And they're brilliant because nice. if, if you have a question, you don't have the time to read a book. Um, it makes sense to actually, you know, at least interact with some content um, and, and, and think through it. So I use it regularly. And, uh, you know, it's like someone asks me a question, even pastorally. Someone comes up, hey, what about this? And I say... That's good. Give give me till tomorrow, you know. And I'll, that's like one of my first resources. <laughs> I'll jump there and then I, I go and look at it and see what he has to say. Um, but use these resources. There's so much content out there. Please use them, guys, uh, yeah. because uh, they will help. And you. everything
1: on Reasonable Faith is free. That's right. So that's that's an amazing gift that he has given humanity is just making all of his material free.
0: Yeah, it's it really is, and I I have no idea how he puts in the time, like how like where he gets the time from. Maybe maybe he time travels. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I have inside information that he's actually a cyborg. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He works like one. Um, Well, uh, Tyson, thanks again, man. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, Guys, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Again, if you like this, you enjoy this, uh, share it out. One of the things I'm going to try to do is take these videos that I'm, these interviews, and then chop them up, and then so we can have shorter kind of segments, uh, shareable kind of segments of them. So that should be coming up in uh, in the near future. Probably when I'm like back in the states and trying to get reestablished, and I don't have the space and uh, to to do these interviews until we get that established. But uh, I appreciate it. God bless you guys. God bless you, Tyson. I'm going to end this broadcast now.